All right. A um, couple of announcements that I'm uh, uh, where next uh, this next Saturday is a men's prayer breakfast, and that's good for guys to come out and spend some time together and get to know each other. So uh, men's prayer breakfast at 730. Uh, <clears throat> there will be a lot of calories always. And then the other thing is that after church Sunday, I'm going to go on vacation for a week. So I will be here Sunday morning. Just in case you slept through that, I will be here Sunday morning. But on um, the next Sunday, I will not. Jim's going to continue his study on on Isaiah next week, and I'm going to get a little vacation. And I'll be back uh, two weeks from tonight to cover the second part of Lesson Two, which we're which we're starting tonight. I think that's just about the uh, all the announcements. Anybody knows anything else? Well, anybody who would know if there was another announcement's not here, so. That's the way it goes. All right, before we get started, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, such a great privilege it is to study your word. Just reminded how through the centuries, through the 2,000 years of the church age, that's the ability to study your word, the freedom to study your word, the ability to have a completed canon of Scripture in our hands, to read it, to study it, to memorize it, is just rare that most people in most countries, even today, don't have their own copy of Scripture, or they just have uh, a small amount. They may not even have but one or two books of the New Testament translated into their own own language. We're thankful for the many uh, translators that are out there working for numerous organizations to translate Scripture into these languages that don't have it. And, Father, we continue to pray for our missionaries that we support. We know we support Grace Henserling. She's involved in translations. We don't support her financially, but we do support her uh, through prayer, continue to pray for her as they're wrapping up projects uh, down uh, down in uh, Colombia. Father, we also pray for our other missionaries that are out there, and we just pray for them that you'd supply them with the financial needs that they have. Father, we pray for us as we study in this with this interlocked program that it'll give us a great understanding and overview of your word, and that we may be able to... Uh, uh, teach that to our children, our grandchildren, and the kids in our prep school classes that they might understand the foundational doctrines of your word and be able to uh, answer why they are true and why these alternative views are not. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in our second lesson. And so the second lesson is on pagan views of origins. And we have pagan views of origins, and part one is going to look at, at, at spirit beings. So we're going to get into talking about uh, angels, the angelic revolt, and the significance of the angelic revolt. And I just remembered, because I was late getting in here, that there's something I wanted to do in case, just in case, we have time to get this far 
uh, when I get back. And um, looks like it opened right to it. Good. So I'm going to be able to go back here and we can get started. All right, so we're going to start off with the timeline. And the timeline gives us these 11 Old Testament events and 8 New Testament events as a, a framework for understanding uh, the Scriptures. So we got a couple of kids that are going to come up, and they are going to take us through that timeline. You guys ready? All right. I'll help you out. This is, this is Catherine and Sterling. And they are going to take us through it. They're, they're missing their partner in crime, Stonewall. But I'm sure he's watching. Okay, so they are going to take us through that. So uh, you guys start with, with creation and walk us through it. Go through it. Creation, fall, fall, blood, the Babel, call of Abraham. Exodus, good. Law. The law, Ten Commandments. Conquest. Then what? Kingdom, very good. Exile. Partial return. Birth of Jesus. Cross. Burial. Resurrection, ascension, ascension, church. Okay, you're doing good, church. And then what what ends the church age? Jesus comes back in the air, the rapture. And then seven years later, Second second coming. And then the kingdom. And then final judgment. All right, good. All right, good job. Good job. All right, so I hope everybody got that. So let's everybody stand up and let's go through this. Is anybody here that doesn't have? I had some up here. I don't know where they disappeared to. But they're not here, so uh, everybody can go through these events. You ready? Creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel, call of Abraham, Exodus, Ten Commandments, the law, then you have the conquest, and then the kingdom, then the exile, both north and south go into exile, and then there's a partial return birth of Jesus, then there's the cross, death, and the burial of Christ, then the resurrection, and then the ascension, and then there's the church age, and then at the end of the church age, there's the return of Christ in the air, the rapture, and we go to heaven, and then at the end of the tribulation, he returns at the second coming, establishes the kingdom And then at the end of the thousand years, there's the great white throne judgment. All right. Very good. Most of you are getting it. Most of you are getting it. So you've got, you've got next week. I'm not going to be here so you can practice a lot. 
and then be ready when I, when I come back. Okay, the idea that we're going to develop more and more is this idea of these events as um, <clears throat> like uh, coat hooks a, that you hang your coat on. And so you can hang any number of things on a good coat hook. And so for creation, we talked about several things. What did we talk about? We talked about the creator-creature distinction. And then we talked about uh, the divine institutions. So we can put those on there. And I'm going to change up some of the terminology in just a minute. But the reason we go through this is because all of these key events that we're going to talk about are repeated, they're referred to, they're, they're prophesied in some cases, then they're referred back to many times. They are the, the key pegs on which all of the Scripture uh, hangs. And so it's important for us to understand that the whole of the Bible is interconnected and interdependent. And we spend a good deal of time on these first four episodes taking us through the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 because those first 11 chapters in Genesis are the main focus of attack on the historicity and the validity and the truth of the Bible. And that we learned last Thursday night with, when uh, Aaron Lipkin was here talking about uh, Joshua's altar and what they found there, the cursed tablet, that there's a tremendous amount of evidence out there that shows that the Bible is historically accurate. But in a lot of cases, it doesn't gain the respectability from, uh, from ac modern academics, from modern universities, modern scholars. And the reason is that they put on a pair of glasses uh, that are colored with their presuppositions. And so when they put on their glasses, they can't see any evidence that God exists. They can't see any evidence that any of this was historically accurate. And as far as they're concerned, even in Israel, they are taught uh, as they are growing up uh, they, in the home, they may be taught the, uh, the Bible, but when they are in school, they're taught that there was no Moses, there was no Joshua, there was no conquest, there was probably no Abraham, and that these events are just all made up and borrowed for, and borrowed and changed from uh, other areas, other cultures, uh, stories about cre creation or origins, and that kind of a thing. And so what we see is that we live in a world where there are many many stories about how everything came into existence. And so it's important for us to study these things uh, because in the last week or so in the first lesson, what we studied was what the Bible teaches about creation and that God created everything uh, from nothing. And he just created it by the word of his mouth. And we learned some things about the character of God in the previous uh, creation account, and that is that God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful, so he can do whatever he intends to do, and he can create things out of nothing. So before Genesis 1-1, what existed? 
nothing, nothing, not, not anything. And so God just spoke, and the whole universe came into existence. Matter came into existence. And uh, all of the chemicals that make up uh, the earth, everything came, came into existence. Uh, and at one second, there was absolutely nothing. There wasn't even space or time. There was just nothing. We can't imagine that. And then God spoke, and in an instant, it was, it, it was there. And so that is fundamental because when you presuppose that kind of a God, then everything else that happens that's of a miraculous nature in Scripture can be understood and believed. But the problem with most people is that they have a God that is so small and so limited because he's just like, uh, he, he's, he's just a, a sort of a superhuman. He's got more power than humans do, and he can do more things than humans, but he's not all-powerful, and he's not present everywhere, and he doesn't know everything. He just knows more. So he's just like a, uh, a, a big human that, that's just a little bit more powerful and more knowledgeable. And so they, they still don't think that, that these miracles and things can happen. So these unbelieving scholars, they just put their glasses on, and and every, all of this evidence just sort of disappears. Now, we call those glasses assumptions. That's an easier word for some people to handle. But the better word is a presupposition because a presupposition is something, you know, if you're, uh, some of you wear glasses. When you have your glasses on, sometimes you're not even aware you have your glasses on. And I don't know about you, but I've gone around with my glasses on going, where are my glasses? No, oh, no wonder I can see everything. I've got them right on my face. Um, so presuppositions are like that. And so they have these deeply held beliefs that shape how they see the the world around them. And so that has to be attacked. So we'll talk more uh, <coughs> more, more about that. Uh, but the other thing that we're going to look at today is we're going to look at the um, creation of the spirit beings that are called angels. And um, we're also going to be looking at where alternate views of creation come from. Where, where, does, where do these lies come from? Where is the origin of these, uh, of these lies? And as part of this, I want to just briefly uh, let you see the comparison between the interlocked series that we're looking at and the children's version. The interlocked is written for 16, 17, 18 years old and up, and the children's version is written for those that are 10 years old and up. And in the in the children's version, they don't go into one of the things we'll we'll talk about later or maybe not until next time, I'm not sure where I'll end tonight, and that is what's called a worldview, and that's a concept that even a lot of adults have a little bit of struggle with. And um, uh, so it focuses more, as you can see in this right column, is just talking about the spirit beings that were originally created, the uh, what we call the angels, and then the problem with... Uh, Shining Star, which is a good translation for the Hebrew for Lucifer. I'll talk about that. 
And then just the, what all happens in the Garden of Eden and how Satan is really the serpent and the deceiver and his lies are that you won't really die and you can be like God, you can create your own reality. And Adam and Eve believed Satan's lies and then they denied that they were responsible. Now, one of the things that, that they do in the curriculum for the younger kids is have them draw pictures of what do you think of the different kinds of angels that the Bible talks about and some activities like that. So there's a number of activities there that are good to get them just thinking about that. It doesn't focus so much on uh, some of the other, uh, some of the mythology and some of the other false views of creation as much as it does just trying to get a basic understanding of what the, what the Scripture does does teach. So I'll go through uh, a little bit of both. But the reason I'm going into this is this, you can see, this is the basic outline. The three main points are the spirit beings, the shining star, which is the fall of Lucifer, and then pagan view of origins. And notice it talks more about the pagan worldview here and what it looks like today, which is not the focus for the younger children. So just the main thing is is you can talk about these basic uh, main points and subpoints, but they're going to be a little different the younger the child is. And that reminds me, I saw something, I sent that to you, Russell, this morning, that answers in Genesis. I got an email from them today, and they've got some new material that's really to target basic, material for toddlers and for preschool. And so they have some good material there. So if you've got younger kids, then you can look at that material and sort of test it out and let us know uh, how how good it is. Because sometimes they get other people writing material. And I've had, uh, there was one book that Answers in Genesis came out with, and usually their material is very good. One book that they came out with that was talking about the Tower of Babel. It was written for children, and I had my wife check it out, and she's real good in those areas, and it got about a C plus. And so that's not one we would recommend. You think it was that good? Not so much. Okay, so um, it's important to evaluate this this material, even if it comes from a, a usually reputable uh, reputable source. So what we saw the last time in Lesson 1, which we broke actually into three sessions, was looking at God's creation and what he created in terms of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, and especially in relation to the human race. And we looked at that in terms of how God established these social absolutes, these social laws that are just as absolute as the physical laws and that they're called the the social structures are called the divine institutions, and we looked at the first uh, three of those, which is personal choice. I'm changing the terminology there. We need to emphasize the uh, freedom of choice, so per- responsible choice. Second is marriage, and third is family. And then in lesson two, we focus on the wrong views of creation. And we're going to talk about spirit beings, 
the fall of the shining star and the angelic rebellion and then how uh, Satan uh, deceived Adam and Eve. And that's his standard way of approaching things. He wants to deceive us into thinking something is good when it's not. And because we're already sinners, we fall into his traps far too easily. And then the second part of lesson two will help us understand why there are so many different views of creation and history and where they come from. And that is so important because even as early as preschool, uh, kids are being introduced to some of these concepts related to, for example, related to Earth Day, environmentalism, uh, things of that nature. And so we have to be, we have to understand how to approach that with kids. And they just go out and say, it's Earth Day, we all love the Earth, let's, uh, uh, let's do things to make sure the earth will last longer, and there's no critical approach to those questions. And so we need to front load our kids' minds with with uh, the truth. So we'll, we're going to start with some of that right now. So we looked at creation, and now we're going to begin looking at the second event, which is the fall. So we have these three divine institutions. These are divine institutions, which means that God is the one who created them. And he didn't just sort of create them and then plunk them down on on Adam and Eve. He created Adam and Eve in such a way that these social absolutes were necessary for them. God, it, God's not doing this in sort of a fragmented or isolated situation where he just goes out and says, okay, I'm going to make some human beings, and then, okay, let's, let's make up these, these social absolutes so they have to conform to it. He made human beings a certain way so that they will not be uh, stable and prosperous and successful together as a society unless they observe these absolutes. And so you have, first of all, responsible choice. And responsible choice means that, first of all, that we have choices. A lot of times we are in situations where we feel like, well, I really didn't have any choice. But the fact is that we do have choices how we react or respond to certain situations. And you have many examples of uh, where uh, you have the uh, secular worldview comes along and says, well, the reason you have these problems uh, is because of poverty or because of a lack of education, or and they try to blame the environment. And we're going to see that that's not any different from what Adam and Eve did after uh, God came after they had sinned. What did Adam say? He said, it's the woman you gave me. So he's, he's really sophisticated. He's blaming Eve and God at the same time. And so we come along and we say, well, you know, we have to excuse their behavior because they were poor or because they didn't have a good education or because there was a breakdown in the family. And all of these may be contributing in terms of circumstances. But the reality is that there's study after study that show that you have even twins 
growing up in the same house with the same parents, with the, going to the same schools, and one makes one set of choices, the other makes a different set of choices. One goes into criminality, the other one is successful in education and in college because they use their uh, responsible choice in different ways. And then we have marriage. Marriage only works well when people are appropriately using their uh, responsible choice, making the right decisions. And then you have family, which is the arena of education. We delegate to public schools, to private schools, to church schools, education, but the buck stops with daddy. Even though the mother's home most of the time, Scripture says it's the father's ultimate responsibility for the education uh, of the children. So that takes you back to responsible choice. And dads have to make the responsible choice to make sure that when all is said and done, that those kids are trained to think they can do their academic schoolwork and they can do their uh, work in relationship to uh, uh, the Bible and spiritual life. So we saw also the importance of this dis, uh, creator-creature distinction, that God is the infinite personal creator God, and he knows everything there is to know, and he created everything in uh, that it has been created a specific way to operate, to function, uh, to interact with other other things, whether it's uh, the elements of, uh, uh, of an, uh, are parts of an atom or a molecule or whether it is uh, human beings. So God created everything out of nothing. He had a purpose. He, God is a God of order and purpose. And so he is the one who determines that how things are. The creature cannot do that. But when the creature comes along and says, I, I, I'm really a man and not a woman, or that I, I, uh, I'm going to make up my own rules for living. Basically what's happening is he's uh, acting like he's the creator and not the creature. So the first divine institution that we looked at is responsible choice. Uh, we're responsible to God. God's the boss. Man is the lower level boss. So man has to do what God says to do. And that establishes the principle of authority and responsibility. This is before there's a fall. There's authority in the Godhead, as I pointed out. Man is responsible to God to obey God. We're ultimately answerable to God for the decisions that we make in life. Um, had that duplicated. So we looked at um, the God's creation of man, that we're in God's image, and so as God took pleasure in his creation, he expected Adam and Eve to exercise that same creativity and to take pleasure in uh, God's creation. And as an image bearer, mankind was to imitate what God the creator has done. We're all created in God's image and likeness. And then third, that man uh, is, was created in the perfect, unflawed image of God. Uh, when he was he was sinless, but that was only at the beginning. All right, that sort of gets us through oh, four more, a couple more points. Fourth, God, is, as part of responsible choice, gave man volition the ability to make choices. So now we can't always carry out what we choose to do. 
because God's sovereignty overrides us. We may want to give a lot of money to some missionary, but God says, no, I'm going to take your job away from you because I don't want you to do that because I have other plans for him. You know, God does all kinds of things, and um, I think that he he evaluates what we we want to do, uh, even though he may not allow us to do it. Other times we want to do the wrong things, and he doesn't allow us to do that either. Uh, Fifth, each person is accountable to God for our choices. So responsible choice means that there are both positive and negative consequences for the choices that we make. And our sixth, our lives are the result of the choices we make. That is so important to understand. So summary is that we've got uh, a creator-creature distinction, that there's one God. He created human beings in his image and likeness, and that the natural creation is distinct from God. He is second. We have a God who is a personal, sovereign, infinite God, I would say. And that he, third, he is the ultimate God. That's the foundation of what we'll call our, our, our way we look at life. It starts with this. If it doesn't start with this, we're going to have other problems. We also looked at a couple of other questions. I'm going to skip some of these. The second divine institution is marriage. Marriage was designed for the benefit of the human race in order to uh, have children and in order to have grandchildren and to continue to grow and expand the human race so that mankind could do what God said for him to do, which was to rule over the planet. But because of sin, all of that got got messed up. Uh, God created the woman to be a helper for man, and we saw that that's not a subservient role. But that is the same role that God has toward us, that the same word for helper is used to describe uh, God's role in our life as it is to describe uh, the role of a wife to a husband. And then the family, that the family is the primary educational institution, and that's seen in Deuteronomy 6, um, 7 through 9, that we are to repeat the word of God. Uh, to our children, talk about them when we sit in the house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. That's pretty much all the time. Uh, Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. In other words, uh, on your hand means it affects the things you do, and on your forehead it affects the things you think. And then write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It controls the family philosophy. Okay, so we are to discipline our children and direct them on the right path. Parents need to start that at the instant that they are born. I read uh, an article this week that said when a child is born, he has a certain number of synapses, those are connections, in his brain, and that he they expand like 40,000-fold in the first month. So that if you had an analogy, if you had a baby that was born uh, and weighed 8.5 pounds, if his body grew at the same rate, he'd weigh 185 pounds uh, a month later. Now, parents can impact children when all that's forming by reading the Word of God to them, talking to them about the gospel, all of that helps to format the brain. Remember the old days when we used to get a computer and the first thing we had to do was take all these floppy disks and put them in there and format them before anything could happen? 
Well, that's the idea with your children. You need to format the brain with the Word of God from the, from the very beginning. All right, well, let's talk about spirit beings. So by spirit beings, that's just a, another way to talk about angels. But the word angel is actually sort of a, a, a description of what they are. And it comes from a word that means a messenger. So they have a, a role as a messenger. And God created all of these angels, and we'll talk about the number in a little bit. He created all of them before he created the heavens and the earth. So before Genesis 1-1, uh, the heavens, God created the heavens and the earth, and um, that before that, the angels were already there. And we know that from this passage in Job 38, 4 through 7, where God is really reprimanding Job because Job w- went through some suffering, and he gets to the point where he's arrogant, and he wants God to give him an answer because he knows he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't deserve that suffering. And so God is uh, addressing him by asking a lot of questions. The questions are designed to show what Job doesn't understand and can't ever understand, okay? And so God begins by saying, well, you know, you you want all these answers. Well, first of all, uh, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Well, Job wasn't even alive. He wasn't an eyewitness to creation, so he doesn't know why God did what he did. Uh, He doesn't know anything about it. Now, when do you lay the foundation? If you're going to go build a building, is it the first thing you do or is it the finished product? It's the first thing you do. So when it uses this phrase, the foundations of the earth, it's talking about the very beginning of God's creative activity in creating the earth. And then in the, it's the last verse there, verse 7, we want to talk about that when God laid the foundations of the earth, the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Now, it, this is in poetry in Hebrew, and so the term morning stars is parallel to the angels. The term morning stars and sometimes just stars are, is a term that describes the angels. So this is another name for the angels, and and many people think that in some way they're related to the uh, carrying overseeing the functions of the universe and all of the stars. But we see that what happens is they're unified. The all the angels are united, and all of them sang for joy. All of them shouted for joy. What else does that tell you? What did they do? What? They sang. That means that music isn't something man came up with. It's something that is inherent in the Godhead, really, that God created the angels and gave them the ability to sing. So music precedes even the creation of the heavens and the earth. Music is something that has its roots in God. And that's very important. Most people don't think about that. They think music is something that men came up with and it's part of man's creativity. And a lot of people think that any music is okay, but 
the implication of that is music would be the only thing that isn't affected by the sin of man. And that's a problem. Music can be terrible in a biblical sense. So we'll talk about that later. So what happens is you get this idea of the spirit beings being created, and then later, we don't know how much later, there's the creation event. Now, in the chart that you see in the, in the, um, uh, in the curriculum, in the, the notes that you do, they, they, they have the word time over here on the left, and then they have a question here. Is it short, long? How long is this time? Is, is really time, was time created before the, before the angels? I see a couple of people shaking their head. How do you know that time wasn't created before the angels? Now, this, is, this gets you a little bit beyond first grade and second grade. Is in eternity past, there's no time. It's timeless. But there's still a progression of events. God did some things before he did other things. Okay? So there's a progression of events, but there's no time. How do we measure time? by the Earth's uh, rotation around the sun. And that doesn't start until the first day. God, you know, we're told in verse 2 that there's darkness on the face of the Earth. And then uh, God had to create light. We'll come back to that in a minute. God had to create light and separate it from the darkness and then he had to start the rotation of the earth so that morning and evening would make up a 24-hour cycle, and that would be the first day. So until that point, anything before that has no time. So I took that out of the chart because I don't think that's been thought, uh, thought through very well. Um, next question is, when did God create these spirit beings? Well, from Job 38, 4 through 7 that we just studied, it's that it's before God laid the foundation. But we don't know in terms of the t- clock that is created on day one how much time. I think it's even wrong to ask the question, well, how much time went by? Because there's, what, there's no what? There's no clock. There's no time. Hasn't been, hasn't been created yet. So God creates the angels, and then uh, after that, God created, laid the foundation uh, of the earth. Now, when God created the spirit beings, God exercised his artistic capabilities. We see God as an artist, as exceptionally creative. Now, remember, this is before that God ever creates the heavens and the earth. It's before God created any animals. And yet we're, we're told that some of these uh, spirit beings looked like what we think of as certain kinds of animals. What does that tell you? That tells you that before God created the angels, long before God created eagles or oxen or, um, or anything else, God already had those ideas in his mind, and he used them in different ways. So the first thing you see is a a group of angels that are referred to as seraphs, which means burning ones. So 
that's another issue. But the, that S, we think called seraph is singular, one seraph. In English, we would say it's, if there's more than one, that it's seraphs. The I-M ending is from the Hebrew, and that's the same as our S. So seraphim and seraphs are the same thing. So a lot of people will always refer to them with that I-M ending. That's fine. But all it means is that there's more than one, more than two. This is extra credit. It's because Hebrew has an ending that's a dual. So if you're talking about two, you would say seraphim. And that would tell you that there's two. Okay, that's your extra credit if I remember that in two weeks. So Isaiah uh, has this, is all of a sudden he's brought into the throne room of God. God pulls back the veil. He's in the throne room of God and attending God are the mighty, these mighty seraphim, more than one. Each has six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. Now, what's that going to look like? You know, for kids, a good exercise is to try to draw that, to see what that looks like, okay? Then another category of angels are the cherubs, okay? Cherub, singular, cherubs, plural in English. Cherubim would be Hebrew for more than two. They had, they're described, as, there's a whole section on, in Ezekiel 10, that really is a lengthy description of them, and uh, also in Ezekiel 1.10. But in Ezekiel 1.10, it says that they had four faces that all faced forward. That's really an odd thing to imagine. One is, and, and um, one's a cherub, one's a human, one's a lion, or that should be one is a man, um, bum, 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 a man, a lion, an eagle. One's an uh, eagle. I, I left that. Uh, that that's wrong. There's a, I, I copied that wrong. Um, one is an ox. One, uh, no, we have an ox there. Ox, eagle, lion, human. Yeah, take cherub out of that first definition. So they all face forward. So one is the face of a human, one's the face of a lion, one's the face of an eagle, and one's the face of an ox. But when God created them, there were no oxen, there were no eagles, there were no lions, there were no humans. So God already had those body parts in mind. And he used them in a different way to create this class of angel. And uh, But in Ezekiel 10.8, they had the face of a cherub, a man, a lion, and an eagle. Okay, so it's, it's, it's a little different. There's... there's um, um, lion is missing. No, lion's there, man's there, eagle's there. Those three, man, lion, eagle, ox is missing. Okay, and I'm not going to go into any details on that. They have wings, and under their wings they have a human hand. And they have four human hands, so that implies four wings. Whereas seraphs had six wings. You, can, you know how you can remember that? Seraph has six. S. Seraph had six. Cherubs had four. And um, so they're always presented, they're over the Ark of the Covenant, and they're always presented as being in the presence of God. They are embroidered on the inside of the 
of the tent covering the tabernacle and on the uh, door on the on the uh, uh, fabric on the uh, like it were the curtains at the opening of the tabernacle are all in, have the image of a cherub uh, embroidered on them. Then you have another group called living creatures, and they're said to be full of eyes. One of the living creatures, Revelation 4.11 says, uh, was like a lion. Uh, another was like a calf. The third is like a man, and the fourth was like an eagle. And they're just called living creatures, so they're very different as well, but they're also associated with the throne room of God. And each one of them has six wings. So some people think that they're also uh, seraphs, but there's a lot of, it's not clear, there's not enough information given there. And so there are also different uh, types. There's only one archangel, and that's na- and his name is Michael. And there is only one other name given for an angel, and that's Gabriel. And he seems to be a special messenger uh, to give revelation uh, to those in Israel. And Michael also seems to be a special protector for Israel. But you only have those two names. And how many angels are there? Well, in Revelation 5:11 it says then I looked again and I heard the voices of and in it's it's it means it's myriados in the Greek which comes over into English is myriads. How many is a myriad? We don't know. It's just an enormous number. So some will say millions and millions. But we don't know how many a myriad is. So there's myriads and myriads and thousands of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. So there's just billions of angels probably. We don't know how many. Fifth, the name angel means a messenger. Angels were created to serve God. I think that's man was created to rule over God's creation. Angels were created to serve God. I think that uh, it's creativity is part of the image of God that is dis, that makes humans distinct from angels, and also that we are uh, to rule as as God's underlords. Now, there was one angel that's actually a cherub, which I talked about a minute ago, and that angel is sometimes, in some translations, called Lucifer. Later, he's called Satan. So I want you to understand uh, who this is. In Isaiah fourteen twelve through 14, uh, we learn about his fall. And when how he became a sinner, because when God creates something, it's going to be perfect. It's going to be sinless. And this angel had free choice, responsible choice. So this was also true for the angels. And he had a, a choice whether he was going to be completely obedient in serving God or if he was going to try to uh, break the creator-creature distinction. That's why that creator-creature doctrine is so important because the first sin is of a creature trying to be the creator. And does that happen anymore? 
Yeah, that happens every day. Every one of us thinks that we know more than God does at some point. So the statement is made, How you have fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. And uh, that's the translation from the New Living Translation, which is a good translation. The Hebrew is Hillel ben Shahar. Hillel son is a name for the for the for um, for Venus rising. It's the morning star. Hillel son of the morning. That's what Hillel ben Shahar means. So, and it was translated into Latin as Lucifer, because the word lux is the Hebrew word for light. And Lucifer was the name for Venus, because Venus is the first or last, uh, looks like a star, but it isn't. It's a planet. And uh, that's the first or last that is seen. And so that the shining star that name, uh, Lucifer, was applied here, and so that's why people think that's his name, but that's not his name. In Hebrew, it's Halel bin Shahar. In English, it's Shining Star. So he is the Shining Star, and he was the most beautiful, the most powerful, the most intelligent of all of God's creatures. Now, what happened is that he wanted to be like God. That's what we see in those verses. Uh, He said to himself in verse 13, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. Who are God's stars? The angels. Remember what I said? The morning stars. The term stars applies to angels. So he sets himself, he wants to rule over all of the angels. And uh, he says, I will preside on the mountain of the gods. Uh, far away in the north. And what he's alluding to there is that in the north, in Syria, there was a mountain that was where, like Mount Olympus for the Greek gods, there's this mountain in Syria, which is where those gods were. And we also know that the term used for Elohim is a term that referred to those who acted like they were gods, which were really the demons. So he says, I will preside on the mountain of the gods. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to rule over all the angels. He keeps saying it in different ways. And then in verse 14, he says, I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. See, what he wants to do is level up. He wants to go from the second level of being a creature to the upper level, which is being a creator, being on par with Yahweh which is the specific name of God. We'll talk about that and develop that as we go along. So he wanted to promote himself to be like God. Now, some of you have worked for different companies. Can you promote yourself? Can you give yourself a raise? Not really. That doesn't usually work real well. You, You usually don't have a job if you try to do that. So this is his name, Shining Star, Son of the Morning, or Halal bin Shahar, uh, which is what I just said. And he's described in Ezekiel 28, 14 as an anointed cherub. A cherub was one of those creatures that had uh, four different faces. And he had hands under his wings, had four hands, so he had four, four wings. And that's how we know that. So in this chart, we see that in those two passages... Uh, one passage in Isaiah is addressed to the king of Babylon, but he's really talking to the power behind it. Just like in Genesis 3, 
after the serpent. Now, who was indwelling the serpent? Satan. And when God spoke to Satan, how did, how did he do it? He addressed Satan through the serpent. So in um, Isaiah 14, God is addressing Satan as the power behind the king of Babylon. And in Tyre, in fact, when we look at this passage in a minute in Ezekiel 28, the first 10 verses are addressed to the prince of Tyre, which would be the human king. Then the next set of verses from verse 11 down to the end of the chapter are addressed to the king of Tyre, which is the real power behind the throne, and that would be Satan again. So he addresses the human king, but he's really talking to the evil angel of darkness that is behind the human power. So both of these passages address a human king, but ultimately to Satan. So when did the shining star fall? Now, this is a little different argument than some of you have heard before. And so I want you to pay close attention. From the name shining star, it's clear that light is already present. Understand what I'm saying? If there's no light in the universe then why would you call an angel a shining star if he's not reflecting light in some way? So light's there, right? Of course, right. Second, we know that God is light. In 1 Timothy 6.16, we're told uh, he lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. King James says he dwells in unapproachable light. So God, everything around God is brilliantly lit. In 1 John 1, 5, John says God is light. He is light. That means light radiates out from God, and there's no darkness in him at all. So if if God is existing and there's no universe yet, it's before Genesis 1, 1, is is there any darkness? No. Okay, that's important. I've been thinking about this for about three months, going, where did that darkness come from? That, I never heard anybody address it from that vantage point before. Then we learned that at the end of time, in Revelation 21, when we're in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem comes down to the earth, the city doesn't have a hydroelectric plant. It doesn't have a nuclear power plant. It has God. It says the city has no need of the sun or the moon. So in that new heavens and new earth, there's not going to be a sun or moon. And I take it there aren't even going to be stars. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Is there any darkness? No. I think it mirrors the orig- what things were like before Genesis 1-1. And then in Revelation 22-5, it says, There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light, 
and they shall reign forever and ever. So the Lord God illuminates everything just from his person. So when we come to Genesis 1-2, we read, when God created the heavens and the earth, stars aren't created till the fourth day. So if you're imagining the universe at this point, it better be empty except for one planet. I described this when I was in the seventh grade. I had to do a science project. And my parents had just gotten a new refrigerator freezer, and so I had that refrigerator freezer box. So I painted the inside of that box black. And so I want you to imagine God created the universe, which is finite. It's just a big black box. We call that space. And then he created the earth. So the only thing hanging inside that dark space was what? The earth. That was it. No planets yet. No universe, nothing else. No stars, nothing else. So, And it says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. Where did that darkness come from? If God dwells in a brilliant light that is unapproachable, and that's all there is prior to Genesis 1.1, and if the angels are called morning stars and they're existing by then, morning stars have what? Light. And Satan, the shining star, then with their creation, they, they were, they, there was light when they were created. There's no darkness yet. Third, we have to ask that question, then where did the darkness come from in Genesis 1-2? And the answer is that between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 is when the shining star sinned and the earth was plunged into darkness. And because there, uh, we'll read it in a minute, because there was a, a physical place where the shining star had his domain, we believe that was was the earth. And it was plunged into darkness as God's judgment on Lucifer's sin. So then we realize that darkness throughout Scripture is also a picture of sin in the fall. Look at these verses. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, For you are all children of the light and of the day, talking to believers. We don't belong to darkness and night. See that contrast? Darkness and night are use metaphorically for evil, for the fallenness of mankind. 2 Corinthians 11.14, Paul writes, but I'm not surprised talking about false prophets who present themselves as messengers of light. He said, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Wait a minute. If he has to disguise himself as an angel of light, what is he really? He's an angel of darkness but he disguises himself as an angel of light. So that if Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, this implies that, in fact, he's an angel of darkness. Now, Ezekiel 28, 11, let me read through this. This is the second major passage on Lucifer's fall. He says, Son of Man, addressing Ezekiel, Sing a lament for the king of Tyre, not the prince who's the human leader, but the king which is the power behind the throne. And say to him, 
This is what the sovereign Lord says. You are the sealer of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Lucifer, as he was created from the hand of God, was absolutely perfect. He was sinless. He was the epitome of perfection. He was full of wisdom. He was smarter than any other creature. And he was the most beautiful of all of the angels, all of the spirit beings. And then it says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, this Eden isn't the Eden of Genesis chapter 2. This is before that. Why? Well, I'll show you. It says, every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the emerald, the chrysolite, onyx, and jasper. So all of these, in fact, all but three of these, nine of these 12 are precious jewels that are on the breastplate of the high priest. So there's something significant about those. And says, um, you know, the settings and mounts were of gold. In other words, every part of you was created perfectly. And then he says, I placed you there with an anointed guardian cherub. And the word anointed is the Hebrew word Mashiach. What is that in English? Messiah. It means someone who's anointed or appointed to a specific responsibility. It doesn't mean that he was also a Messiah. I've heard people say that. No, that's not right. He just appointed to be the guard, the guardian cherub. He is the number one secret service agent guarding the throne of God. Says, I placed you there. Um, you, you walked amidst fiery stones. So this planet had fiery stones. So that's not the planet we see in Genesis chapter 2. You were blameless in your behavior from the day you were created until sin was discovered in you. In the abundance of your trade. So, so he's trading on something. I mean, this is a really picturesque word. It's the word that was used for the Phoenicians who were traders. They had the biggest fleet. They would travel the, all over the Mediterranean, and they would buy things here and sell them over there. And so this is the idea he's trading on something. What's he trading on? He's, he is, he's like the, the one who determines who goes into God's presence and who doesn't. So that's what he's trading on. You are uh, filled with violence and you sinned. Why? Because he wanted the worship that, that others were bringing to God. So I defiled you, God says, and banished you from the mountain of God. The guardian cherub expelled you from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom. So arrogance is the original sin. Uh, you corrupted your wisdom on account of your splendor. I threw you down to the ground. I placed you before kings that they might see you. That would be referring to rulers among the angels. And then he says, by the multitude of your iniquities, through the sinfulness of your trade, you desecrated your sanctuaries. So I drew fire out from within you. It consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth before the eyes of all who saw you. That is very picturesque judgment that occurs. All who knew you among the peoples are shocked at you. You've become terrified and no more. So he becomes Satan. The word Satan means the one who accuses. So Revelation 12.10 there in the underlined section, this is talking about uh, Christ will come um, 
And for the accuser of our brethren, that is Satan, Satan, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. So his original name was Shining Star, Morning Star, and now he's known as Satan or Devil. Satan is Hebrew, Devil, Diabolos is Greek. They both mean accuser or adversary. He is the uh, ruler of this present darkness, and he's called the Prince of Demons. He's also referred to by, by several other names, but that is where sin entered into human history. Oh, so I bring that to a close, which is good. We got through the angels. Now we understand that God created everything. He created it perfect. There was no sin. He created the angels first. And then he laid the foundation of the earth and some, at some point in there, uh, there's this judgment on the earth that brings darkness on the earth. The only thing that can explain that is going to be the, the fall, the sin of Satan. And then God is going to re, redo the planet. He's going to have a little uh, renovation project, and he's going to redo the planet. Now, some people say, well, you know, we can squeeze all of the uh, ages and all the, all the geologic ages in there. No, you can't. What did I say? When, does time, when is time created? Day one. There's no, there's no clocks before day one. That's just one, one of many reasons. But there, there's no, nothing there. The only creatures God has created at that point are, are the angels. And there's this angelic revolt that takes place. And then God renovates the planet with a special focus on humanity. Man is created a little lower than the angels, but he will be elevated above the angels because he's in the image and likeness of God. And so that tells us a tremendous amount. People always ask me, I got this asked by a friend of mine the other, the other day, do you think there's life on other planets? And I said, no, I don't. I mean, when I was in junior high and high school, I read all kinds of books about UFOs, and I read all kinds of science fiction and everything. But when you live in the text of Scripture, it's all about the human race. Every focal point is on humanity, and there is nothing else. Every aspect of creation is focused on the earth. That is the centerpiece of where Christ died for sin. Once... If God creates other creatures, he would have to give them, because of who he is, choice. If they choose and they disobey God, the only Redeemer has died once. He's not going to die again. How's God going to redeem them? The Bible does not portray a universe where there's life anywhere else but planet Earth. And there's lots of variation, I think, just from what we see among the angels. I think there's lots of variation among, among the angels. So now we've seen the importance of the creator-creature distinction. We've seen that God created the angels. They were uh, brilliant creatures who had choice, but they weren't in God's image. The most brilliant and beautiful of all of them, and he was a, a musician. 
The, the terms there that are used, I think it was something in sockets in this one, but it has to do with, with musical instruments. And so he's a musician. Often laugh that when Satan fell, he fell into the choir loft. He was a musician. Choirs have been known to cause disruption in numerous churches. And then he bounced into the Old Testament department because the Old Testament department is usually the source where heresy begins in seminaries. So uh, that, that's the little saying. But so Satan fell. And then God is going to remake the planet for the, uh, to, be the, to be habitable for the human race that will rule over the planet in God's place as his underlord. So that takes us up to where we are. And so we have to then ask the question, well, if everything was so perfect and everything was so beautiful, how did it turn into such a wreck? Well, we'll cover that next time. And that also explains where all these other theories come from, okay? Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at these things this evening and to understand them and to think our way through them and to help uh, our parents, help the teachers, grandparents be able to communicate this at a more basic level to their children and grandchildren and because we know that they're the hope for the future of our country and we just pray that you will uh, truly uh, use this material to transform uh, many in the next generation and we pray this in Christ's name, amen.